Let's jump right into this today. We're going to pick up what we've been talking about here in this idea of Godonomics. The, what we're looking for is what does God say about money? That's really what it comes down to in, 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 in having a conversation with somebody this week. Uh, not about finances, but just in general. Is what does God have to say about any subject? That's where we should look. We should at least start there. Are there areas in the Bible that can be a little gray and we're not 100, with a 100% certainty? Sure. This isn't one of those. And there are a lot of things that we just often, we take our opinions because we all have, and we've been talking about this at, at youth on, on Monday nights, we all have a worldview. In some way or another, we have a worldview that we, we filter everything through. How you were brought up has a lot to do with the way that you think. It's both financially, but also politically and everything else. What makes something good versus bad is based upon how you were brought up a lot of times. And we need to have, as we, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we need to have a biblical worldview. Is what does God say on any subject? The same thing with money here. The problem is with money is it's often mentioned in the churches like, well, money is the root of all evil. We've looked at that. That is not correct. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And, and Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you put above him? And in our country especially, we are brought up to do what? Chase the American dream. To be financially set, to be wealthy, and all of these other things. None of those things are bad unless that is your treasure. And it talks about that moth and rust will destroy that. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. You see, we put our focus here. So we need to look at this. And we need to look at the principles of what God has to say on the subject. And there are three things that we've talked about, continue to talk about, of when it comes to God. We have liberty, we have prosperity, and we have generosity. These are all things that God wants us to have. We have the freedom to do what we choose to do with our finances. We have freedom to come to God or reject Him. We have freedom to obey God or not obey God, right? Are there consequences to those actions? Absolutely, but we have the freedom to step into that. If you were ever a child, and I know that you were, you may have at some point known that you're about to break a rule. And there is a consequence for breaking said rule that your parents have laid out. And if you were like me, you weighed what the punishment was going to be. Was it worth it? Was the juice worth the squeeze? I remember when I was out, we were playing football at the, at the school, and I was supposed to be home at a certain time. And I knew what time it was, and I was looking at it, and I'm thinking, I'm getting a little bit bigger now, and, uh, and I'm thinking, well, I don't really want to quit because I'm dominating right now, you know, nobody could stop me. Um, I was wearing a Scott Frost jersey at the time, and uh, that part's not true. And, uh, and I knew I was supposed to be home, and I'm thinking, man, I don't want to go home yet. What's my punishment going to be? And I knew what it was going to be. My mother was going to spank me if I got home late, Right? Not abusive, but she was going to spank me. Well, at this point, that had little effect on me. So I stayed and played football, right? In that case, the juice was worth the squeeze. You see, I had the choice to make. Am I going to be obedient or not obedient? It wasn't the fact that it was the obedient thing to do, the correct thing to do, which it was. It was more so what was the consequences. Ideas have consequences. When it comes to this with God, he gives us the freedom to choose what we want to do. He gives us the ability to be prosperous, but there's a purpose for that. It is so that we can be generous. When I mean generous, I don't mean just doing nice things for people. I am talking that there is a, a world that is dying and going to hell. And when we have the ability, we should be funding the ministries that are reaching out to the world. And they start at home. Ministries at home, people that we know. We can do this on our own. There are things that we can do to help other people. And so with this, we looked at the three ideas 
that we have in these different systems. And we're looking at these economic systems. We have capitalism, socialism, and communism. When we've talked about these kind of at length, this is pretty much going to be the last time we look at this. But here are the definitions. Let's read these again. Capitalism is an economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit rather than by the state. Capitalism is a system in which a lar- uh, largely allows markets to allocate scarce resources through prices, property rights, and profit and loss signals. In other words, you own it, and you may sell it, you may keep it, and what makes that thing valuable is what is somebody willing to trade their dollars for in order to achieve it. Okay? You ever owned a piece of real estate? You get a, when you're getting ready to sell it or whatever, they go and do an appraisal. And they base the appraisal off of what other people have spent for similar pieces of property. Now, there are times where somebody is willing to pay more than what that appraisal says in order to get it because they want it. What they have determined that that house is worth more to them than the dollars that it will cost them. And even if somebody is saying that it's not worth that much, it is to them. Have you guys ever owned anything that had no intrinsic value, but it meant something to you? I have, and I'm not proud of it. Do you guys remember the Beanie Baby craze? I was in on that. Here's how it started. I went to a local drugstore. This is back in the 90s. You all weren't even thought of back then. And um, I bought one, and I was going to give it as a gift to somebody. And then I found out it was worth twice what I paid for it. I was hooked at that moment. I'm like, well, this is interesting. So I started buying more. And so what they would do, because these things were rationed, because they did not have enough, is that you would go to these, these stores, these drug stores or wherever they were selling them, and you would draw a number, and whatever number was, you got up and you got to purchase one. So here I am standing in line, the only male person in the building, with a bunch of little old ladies and their granddaughters. I had hundreds of these things. I could tell you all of them by name. I knew what they were worth and all of that. And then at some point, the market completely tanked. They, went, they became worthless. So at this point, I've got all this time and money in it. And for whatever reason, I was sentimental about them. I couldn't get rid of them. I put them on a garage sale, set them all up on the table, 50 cents a piece. At one point, they were significantly more than that. And then as I'm standing there, somebody came up ready to buy one. I'm like, oh, that one's not for sale. Oh, no, no, I can't get rid of that one. And I took them all back. I don't know what it was. Finally, I sent them in a suitcase. There was somebody going over to Kyrgyzstan on a missions trip. I filled a suitcase full of these things. I said, take this from me. I do not need this. Give them to small children. I never want to hear about this again. I'm not proud of this, folks. I traded my valuable dollars, which weren't much, for these stupid beanie babies, okay? And don't look at me like that because I know some of you did it too. I am not alone, I am sure, although it's probably all the women, so whatever. I'm not, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I have finally broken the addiction. I don't want to go back. You s- she still has hers. There you go. Just so you know, they're worth nothing. I do know that security. (laughs) So you see the public dictated the value of these things and the public dictated when they were no longer valuable and unfortunately I bought and sold at the wrong time. Okay. I know that's happened to other people here but this is the capitalistic mindset. The government wasn't sitting here saying okay these are going to be worth $25 a piece. Nobody was making that happen. It was what the public decided that these things were worth. When you get into these other systems, let's go to the next one. 
when we get into socialism, is an economic theory of organization that advocates that the means of production, distribution, exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. It's a system under which the government owns the means of production and through coercive taxation and wealth redistribution allocates resources and makes decisions over property, prices, and production. So does that mean that an individual can own something and have the freedom to do with it what they want? The answer is no. It does not. Does this enable people to be prosperous? It, no, it does not. Because everything, if you make $100 and somebody makes $10, they're going to take from you and give it over here. You may have worked hard to earn that, but that doesn't matter because it's going to be equally redistributed. So you can't be prosperous under that system. Everybody is the same. Thus, it is very difficult to be generous. You can be generous of spirit, certainly. Ultimately, and you'll see this as we get into this more individualized, but we are generous not with the amount that we give, but with the attitude of our heart as we give. That is generosity. Okay, But here, this does not line up with what we see God's principles are. Go to the next one. This one, I think, is pretty commonly known as far as the fact that this is not God's idea. This is where it's derived from Karl Marx. It's a class war leading to society in which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. It's a progression from socialism. One leads to the next and it's a political and economic system which would abolish private property and give it to individuals based on need. This is where everything is 100% owned by the government and they distribute to, to you as they need. So, when we look at this, we need to understand why this is important, okay? Because this is a hot-button topic right now. And that is part of the reason that we're talking about it, and no doubt the timing of this is impeccable, because ultimately, we as believers need to know what God says on any subject. Not what, what the media says, not what the government's telling us. We need to know what God says on any subject. And thus, when we step out there to vote, we should vote according to the convictions that we have, according to that biblical worldview that we possess. And so, what is this? We looked at communism last week. We're going to focus on socialism and what we have here in America this week. So, what is socialism and what does it look like? Well, let's watch this video.
see, this is the, the real world, and this is the unintended consequence here, is because what we don't think about is when we look at this, is ultimately, what does God say on this? Were those people free? You see that they took the business from the guy. You saw that twice. That wasn't the only time. And they're like, well, maybe that's just one guy. Maybe that's just them. But the problem is, is that these ideas are undermining to Scripture. And that's the problem. You see, in Acts chapter 5, when we see Ananias and Sapphira, when they, you know, they were all living communal is, is one of the things that they used. And they try to say that, you know, well, the Bible supports this idea of socialistic society, is that when he was judged, they sold their land, and then he lied and said he brought all of the money, which he did not do, and they were judged based off of it. But Peter said, when you had the land, was it not yours? And once you sold it, were the proceeds not yours to do with what you want? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You see, it was theirs the entire time to do with what they want. So this is an uprising that's happening, but we need to recognize it for what it is. It is not a biblical precedent. What kind of society do we have in America? We have a capitalistic system, sort of. You see, you, you saw the guy from Denmark talking about we are a market economy. That means that the markets dictate the price and value of different items, right? It was kind of what we were describing earlier. And so that is what we are supposed to have now. And you'll see here shortly that that's not exactly what we have. But were we always capitalistic? And the answer is no. As a matter of fact, early America was socialist. Very early America. I'm talking like the pilgrims. America. That's how early we're talking about. Because we're not a country at this point. You had pilgrims that had left. They wanted to get away from the Church of England. They'd gone up to Holland because there was more freedom of religion there. And they weren't able to practice the way that they wanted to, so they fled to America. And what happened, there's a guy named William Bradford. I've got a uh, picture of him here. Good looking dude. Um, lived from 1590 to 1657. He was the first governor, if you will, all over the colonies. And they were escaping this tyranny. There's about 100 or so of them that came over. They came over initially on two ships. One of the ships ended up not being seaworthy. And after two attempts, they turned back. And anybody that still wanted to go jumped on the Mayflower. And, uh, and so they head over here and they land. And that first winter, I mean, half of them die. Like, it was rough. They weren't prepared. They didn't have the means necessary. But they set up a socialistic idea. It wasn't called this at that point. But what they did is that had everybody just kind of work together. And so you had all of these families, and you were going to go all plant fields. And then it was going into one big pool, and it was going to be distributed equally, right? And it seems like a good idea. It makes sense, because can't we all just get along? What if, you know, instead of this person having a whole lot and this person not having much, we just bring everything back to the middle, and then everybody has the same amount? What happens when we do that? Well, I'm going to read straight from William Bradford. It was from his book, A Plymouth Plantation. It was in 1623. This is what it says. All this, while no supply was heard of, neither knew they when they might expect any. So they began to think of how they might raise as much corn as they could and obtain a better crop than they had done, that they might not still thus languish the misery. And the misery he's talking about is how they were doing it before. They're getting ready to change from this socialistic mindset. At length, after much debate of things, the governor, which with the advice of the chiefest among them, gave way that they should set corn, every man for his own particular, and in that regard trust to themselves, and all other things to go on in, general way, in the general way as before. And so assigned to every family a parcel of land, 
according to the proportion of their number, for that end, for only for present use, but made no division for inheritance, and ranged all boys and youth under some family. This had very good success, for it made all hands very industrious. So as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means the governor or any other could use, and saved him a great deal of trouble, and gave far better content. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to set corn, which before would allege weaknesses and inabilities, whom to have compelled would have been thought great tyranny and oppression. The experience that was had in this common course and condition, and we say common course where all things are owned in common, tried sundry years, and that amongst godly and sober men may well evince the vanity of that conceit of Plato's and other ancients applauded by some of later times. That the taking away of property and bringing in community into a commonwealth would make them happy and flourishing, as if they were wiser than God. For this community, so far as it was, was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment that would have been to their benefit and comfort. For the young men that were most able and fit for labor and service did repine that they should spend their time and strength to work for other men's wives and children without recompense. The strong, or man of parts, had no more in division of victuals and clothes than he that was weak and not able to do a quarter of the other could. This was thought as injustice. The aged and graver men to be ranked and equalized in labors and victuals, clothes, etc., with the meaner and younger sort, thought it some indignity and disrespect unto them, and for men's wives to be commanded to do service for other men as dressing their meat, washing their clothes, etc., they deemed it a kind of slavery, neither could many husbands well brook it. Upon the point, all being to have alike, and all to do alike, they thought themselves in the like condition, and one as good as another. And so, if it did not cut off those relations that God has set amongst men, yet it did at least much diminish and take off the mutual respects that should be preserved amongst them, and would have been worse if they had been uh, men of another condition. Let none object to this as men's corruption, and nothing to the course itself. I answer, seeing all men have this corruption in them, God in his wisdom saw another course fitter for them. What it's just saying is that the message that we tried proved ineffective because the men who were able to work didn't seem to think, well, I don't need to go out today because somebody else can do this. Why am I doing this for somebody else? And the older men, of course, could, and, and the wives thought it's slavery to go out there and take care of the other men. As I take care of my own family. Why should I be taking care of this? And so the reason for that is the heart of man is evil from his youth. You see, we have something in us that we were born with that makes us take care of us. Now, God comes in and changes the heart, and we start to look outwardly focused, but that does not mean that the principles that God laid out of the ability to have liberty, prosperity, and be generous are not there. Because what happens after this fact is that they had more corn than they even knew what to do with, so much so that they were able to actually sell it and use that funds for other things. And when I say sell it, they weren't trading dollars, but items. It was a bartering system. And there was more than enough that helped take care of everybody. And so while an older man may not be able to work a field, he was able to bring other things to the table that these men were willing to trade their corn and other items for, and thus it made the system work. That is a market economy. That is what they went to because they saw the failure of socialism and had people starving to death. And you may be thinking, well, that could never happen here. Well, I'm giving you an example where it just did. And I'm about to introduce you to a man who is bringing these ideas. Now, you may have heard of him. You may not have heard of him. But his name is John Maynard Keynes. 
Here he is on Time Magazine. You may have heard of the Keynesian economics. In fact, he's from 1883 to 1946, he's not alive anymore. There's another image of it here that, that has to do with his principles. Newsweek put out a magazine not that long ago, says we are all socialists now. And this is all basing off this Keynesian economics. And when you study him out and start to understand him, you'll, you'll realize how much he has influenced both sides of the political aisle and is very much involved in our economy today. In fact, economies around the world have practiced his, uh, his teachings. You got guys like Hoover that were greatly influenced, FDR, things like the New Deal, all comes from Keynesian's idea. George Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, all of these people have been influenced, and many, many more, by him. His ideas on money is the almost direct opposite of what God taught on money, and yet we take these today. Because what this does is it moves us towards a socialist mindset. And his principle is simple, and we spend our way out of debt, we borrow more when we're in trouble. When things are bad, we borrow more money. So, let's look at this chart. I've showed you this before, this idea of how money works. According to what we see in God, that we should produce something and thus sell it or however we do it and make a profit. And from that profit, we have savings. And out of those savings, we give, we invest, and we spend. Right? We give to those who have need. We invest in things that will produce more income. And then we spend some. In other words, we enjoy some of it. Right? Why? Because it is ours. Was it not yours when you owned it? Was it not yours when you sold it? And so out of this investing and, and spending part, we may bring this back. That way we can increase our ability to produce, thus increase our ability to profit, thus increase our ability to save, and thus increase our ability to do those three items. You guys see how that works? In other words, that if you start with a small jar, and you're going to fill it up, and you make enough money that you can buy a bigger jar, think about the woman with the oil that when she kept bringing jars, and they just kept getting filled until she ran out. You see, that is the idea here. This is what we would call Godonomics, the idea that God has. But let me show you the chart with Keynesian economics. You notice it gets a little more complex. You see, we have God's way of doing things, but then you have this little, little chart up here. And so as I said, we get the idea here that in order to, um, with Keynesian's idea, is that when we're in debt, we should spend more money. And that when we're in trouble, we should borrow more money. So Keynesian economics starts with consuming instead of producing. If you ask about our economy today, what kind of economy do we have? We have a consumer economy. We don't have a productive economy. You hear President Trump talking about how we're trying to bring factories back in where we're actually producing something and selling it. But we have a consumer economy where we're just basically focusing on uh, the purchase of different items. So Godonomics in itself focuses on others because if you're going to produce something, you have to do it in a way that other people want to uh, buy it, 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 enter into it with you in order to turn a profit. If you're creating something that nobody wants, it's not going to sell. If you're creating something that somebody might want, but they don't like you, they may not buy it. Right? You guys hear about this all the time. Somebody gets mad politically, they're going to call for a boycott on pick your favorite business. Right? It happens all the time. Why are they doing that? Because by doing that, it's going to hurt the bottom line. At least that's what they think. And so they may change what they're doing. That's the idea behind it. So this here, it starts with consuming. And in order to consume, when we're talking about a government where Godonomics focuses on um, 
others. This consumer economics basically gives us the idea that I deserve more than I can afford. I deserve that. I've worked hard. I deserve that. I deserve more than I can afford. But I haven't saved enough money for it, so therefore, how do I buy it? Well, we buy it by borrowing. I'm talking about individuals. Where do we borrow from? Credit cards. Pick your thing. Well, what happens when we do that? According to the Bible, when we borrow money, and I'm going to use this very, very carefully here, I have enslaved myself. Because Proverbs 22.7 says this. It says, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. The borrower is servant to the lender. So now let's look at that chart again. What happens here is that in order to get the money, they tax the producers. And so they do it this way, and thus they borrow more money, and we're talking about an economy, that they are borrowing money from other countries, thus enslaving them to other countries. Why does this matter? Why is this a big deal? Well, look what Albert Einstein says. This is his quote. The strongest force in the universe is compound interest, right? Compound interest isn't a bad thing because if you're putting money away and that interest is compounding, if you don't know what that means, here's what it is. You put in a dollar and you earn 10 cents on that dollar for a year, okay? Which would be a pretty good return right now. But you earn 10, that'd be 10%. And so next year, you earn an interest off the dollar plus the 10 cents. So it's on $1.10, and it begins to snowball. It's the same thing as when you borrow money. It's the same principle. You are now, your debt is based off of what you borrowed plus the interest. You ever look at a mortgage statement? Look at the end of that baby. Look how much that house just cost you. It's nowhere near what you just paid for it. So Albert Einstein, one of the wisest men to ever live, says this. So how does a country borrow? Well, it's, it's based off of this. It's based off of this chart, that we are a consumer economy, and so we borrow from someone else. And when we do that, it inflates our currency. We borrow money from the producer. All three of these things hurts the poor. Because you heard her talk about in that video about um, inflation and how it was 14600000 Bolivar to buy a chicken. Okay? And this has happened in different parts of the world. But how does that hurt the poor? Because they have their dollar, their piece of paper, but it is now worth less than it was a week ago. And when you get into hyperinflation, you start seeing things like that. So you get these things. So let me give you an example of this. The Chinese has to keep lending us money so that we can keep buying their products. Because you hear about we're borrowing from China all the time, right? Look at the, the, the you can go to usdebtclock.org or something like that. And watch that thing move. I mean, you think the dollar on the gas pump moves fast. My goodness. I, I pulled it up Friday. Just so I was curious to see where it was. 21 trillion some. Like, wrap your head around a trillion. Do you know what a trillion looks like? Apparently neither does the government. Because it's a lot. I mean, think about that in seconds. It would be ridiculous. And so the idea here is in Keynesian economics is that we go to China and say, we want to purchase your product, but we can't afford to buy it. Will you loan us the money? Now, China has an interest in selling their product, so they're like, well, yeah, we'll loan you the money, and we'll get a little bit of interest on it, and then we can buy the product. So we create this big circle, right? I can't afford to buy your product, but I want your product, so will you loan me the money so that I can buy your product? Because if China stops selling us stuff, who are they going to sell it to? So they have to sit, loan us the money in order for us to buy it. But it's going to reach a point in time where they're going to sit there and they're going to wise up and be like, 
this isn't really working out well for us in the long run. So this is the idea of Keynesian economics. And why is this guy so popular? Well, Keynes' real goal was not to establish an economy, but he wanted to destroy capitalism. And that's what all of this stuff comes down to. Here's a quote from him. It says, capitalism is the astounding belief that the most wickedest of men will do the most wickedest of things for the greatest good of everyone. In other words, we will do anything to make a buck. Is that true? For some. Why? Because the heart of man is evil from his youth. So it is possible. We see bad things happen all the time. You see people that will undermine their value system because the dollar value of what they're asked to do will reach a certain point. And it's no different here. He hated capitalism. But what he would say is like, now if you put me in charge, I am the one exception to the rule that I would do what's in my best interest. Everybody else would do that. In fact, everybody else has done that, but not me. You saw Hugo Chavez. You see him. He's talking about we need to redistribute the wealth. Don't worry, guys. I'm going to take care of you because I am the one person that in all the world of evil has a heart for the people and will do what's right for them. And right now, as we speak, they are starving down there because there is nothing. Because now you have taken everything, uh, every means of production from them, and they, cannot, they can no longer go out there and produce an income, produce something to bring an income home. Capitalism does not eliminate greed, and it never will. But what it does do is it neutralizes it. Because if somebody is acting out of sort, then you stop going there. There are places that I do not shop because I disagree with the values that they, they lift up. If somebody donates to Planned Parenthood, I try not to shop there. I'm not so hard-headed to say, you know, if I'm, I'm driving somewhere, and I, I don't know that this is the case, but let's say Walgreens, okay, and let's say they were a big donor to Planned Parenthood. I don't want to give them any of my money, okay? But if I'm driving by and my kid is not feeling well and they're the only one there, I'm going in and I'm getting something for my child, so don't misunderstand me. But this here eliminates or neutralizes the greed because if you're too greedy and you start charging too much and you're taking advantage of people, people will stop going to your business. It happens all the time. And so that's the idea here is the market is now dictating where Keynes does this different. Here's another quote for him. And this is really what his, his idea was. The best way to destroy the capitalistic system is to debauch the currency. By continuing process of inflation, government can confiscate secretly and unobserved an important part of the wealth of their citizens. If you stick your money underneath of a mattress, and you did that 50 years ago, and you put $10,000 50 years ago, what would $10,000 buy you? A lot. May have bought you a house. $10,000 won't get you a decent car today, right? And how is that happening? Because of inflation. Our dollar today is worth so much less. See, this is part of the Keynesian philosophy, is by taking the ability away from you, you depend more on the system. Where a true market system owned and operated by the people and for the people will eliminate this and neutralize this because government does not hold everything. Okay, So there are two things that we need to think about. We do not spend our ways to slavery, or we spend our way to slavery, but not to prosperity is how I want to say it. Right? You can't just go spend more and keep pulling. Only the government gets a printer that prints more dollars. And then we need to act our wage. Live within our means. You see, Keynes wants us to spend our way to prosperity. 
And so his philosophy here is that government stimulation and cont- will control the economy and it is necessary for the general health and well-being. Now think about that. So in other words, without the government, we would not have any way to keep the economy afloat. We saw bailouts a few years ago, right? You remember that? And there were some groups that were like, yes, we need these bailouts. And there were some groups like, no, they need to live or die based off of what, they, what they're doing, right? We should allow systems to fail that have not been meeting the needs of the market. Why did we see um, such an uprise in, in uh, foreclosures back in the 2008-2009? Because banks were getting greedy and giving loans to people who had no way of paying them back. I had a family member that got in on some of that. He took out a 30-year interest-only loan, which means that every payment you make goes 100% to interest, and you never pay down any principal on that home. And so what happened, and the reason this happened is because he couldn't afford that house any other way, but they made it work for him, not what's in his best interest, but gave him what he wanted. And he's, he's a big boy. He should have to, you know, own that. But it came to a time where they got into some financial trouble and the market had turned and he had to borrow $15,000 to sell his house. And he had never paid down one interest. That house cost him, I think, close to $100,000 and he never owned it. That's messed up. And that's why these banks got in trouble is they were loaning money to people that had no ability to pay them back and got them into setups that made it impossible for them to get out of. So the stimulation of the economy is approached through encouraging consumption in the marketplace. And we measure this based off of GDP, the gross domestic product. It's the measure of the output of a country, the number of dollars exchanged through the year. So here's how this works, is that the government comes out with a stimulation package. Remember Bush did that? You guys, George GWB, I remember I got a check in the mail from him. I got $600 back in, what was that, 2000, 2001, something like that? I don't remember when it was. Because it was an economic stimulation package. It was a, a prorated tax refund after the fact all the taxes were done. And so the idea is the government gives you this $600, this is what it was for Amy and I, and then we take that $600 and we go down the street and we spend it. And then they tax that money and bring it back in, and then they come up with another one. And so you've got this big circle, Okay. And thus, because more dollars have now entered into the economy, now where do those dollars come from? A printer, okay? More dollars have entered into the economy, thus our GDP is up. Isn't things going well? No. You see, it gives the idea of a healthy economy. But it's not. GDP is a good thing. But it is literally measured on the number of dollars that have exchanged hands. Now, if those dollars are made by individuals out there and purchasing things and stuff like that, that's one thing. But if the government is pulling money out of thin air and they're printing it, and you guys know that they are because they admit to doing this, it is now deflating our currency, thus those dollars are worth less. See, they say a healthy public debt underneath these Keynesian philosophy is somewhere between 50 and 70% of the GDP. Now, let's think about that for a minute. That means that at least half of whatever your GDP is, up to 70%, should be in debt. Our economy, we're very much in debt in America, right? So if it was $100, 50 to $70 of that should be debt. Now, what do they do when they want to borrow more money? We have to increase the GDP. So what do we do? We do stimulation packages. 
and we send more money into the economy, thus it's getting printed, and it's getting sold and bought and all that other stuff, thus increasing our GDP. Now that 50% is now $120, and so we can get 60 bucks instead of the original 50 And that's how we keep going. And that's how you end up with $21 trillion in debt. So it's just average spending cycle. This is what it looks like. Here's number one. You see, a new law calling for spending by the government. Question, what does the government produce that it has money in order to spend? The answer is nothing. If you said anything, you failed the test. All right? The answer is nothing. How does it get its money? Taxing the producers. Okay? And we can talk about income tax at another time. Did you know we once had no income tax in this country? And we did just fine. Anyway, let's go on. Number two. Tax dollars, they run out because they've only got so many of those, so then it goes to number three. The Federal Reserve prints additional money for the Treasury, since it is a big pool of money. Just so you know, the Federal Reserve is not federal, it's privately owned. Okay? Number four, public debt is increased. Number five, additional dollars enter into the economy. Here's number six. Larger money supply, thus, the decreased value of the dollar. So if I have one gold bar, and it's the only gold bar in the world, and everybody wants it, is it worth more? Yes, it is. But if everybody has them, is it worth less? No. Or yes, it is worth less. Kind of like my Beanie Babies. They made too many of them. I'm not bitter. I'm okay. Number seven, GDP is increased because of new money that is put into the economy. Number eight, so we have a higher GDP, which equals a lower percentage of debt, to the GDP, and then what do we do on number nine? We rinse and repeat. We start it all over again. So here's how Keynes said it. Here's another quote for him. Is if you owe your bank manager a thousand pounds, he was British, you are at his mercy. But if you owe him a million pounds, he is at your mercy. So in other words, if I go to my banker and borrow a thousand bucks, and I have a problem paying it back, it's a thousand dollars a lot of money, but it's not going to kill them. So they're going to cut me off and say, no, nope, you've got to find a way to repay this or we're going to take it back, take back whatever you borrowed it for. If it's a million dollars, now suddenly that bank has a lot more interest in keeping you afloat. And that is the idea of Keynesian economics. Is you borrow so much that they have no choice but to continue and loan you money. Now does our economy start to make a little more sense of what's happening. You see, this philosophy has entered in, and it is all the way throughout Congress, all of it. Presidents, all of them share this idea. Look at what Romans 13, 8 says. It says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see, guys, this is the, I'm not saying borrowing money is necessarily bad. But if we're borrowing money to consume something, that's where it's a problem. If you go out for a steak dinner and you can't afford that and you have to put it on a credit card that you cannot pay off, now you've got that steak dinner plus whatever the interest rate is. What do you have to show for it? Nothing. But if you went out and borrowed money to say to buy a set of tools because you're a handyman and you're going to go fix something, now you've created a means of production. That's the difference. I don't want to get into all of that, but there is a difference. So I'm not saying all borrowing money is bad. What I am saying is that we have to be smart. Now look at this here in Deuteronomy 28. This is where the Israelites are getting ready to go into the promised land. And God is laying out, again, one last thing. I need you guys to be aware of this. Moses is getting ready to die. Deuteronomy is Moses' last sermon. 
if you will. And starting at verse 12, it says, The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give rain to your land in his season and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Why not? The borrower is slave to the lender. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and shall be above you. Ah, you shall be above only and not be beneath. If you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are careful to observe them. So you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day to the right or the left to go to after other gods and to serve them. You see, he said, listen, you can lend to other countries, but do not borrow from them. And then look at verse 15. But it shall come to pass that if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And guys, before, there's a whole pile of things. This is what's going to happen. Remember, that was what was the uh, covenant that they had set up, that obey God, do it, worship him only, and you are going to be well. And he's giving some last things. Guys, don't do this. But look at verse 43. The alien who is among you, that's a foreigner, shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. See, that he's, this isn't a commandment. He's saying this is what's going to happen. And did that happen? Oh, my goodness, yes. Time and time again. You know, Raleigh Morris, our, our Jewish missionary that we support, I asked him one time, I said, what is it with, with Jews and money? You know, there's, there's that that uh, jokes that go around and all that kind of stuff, you know. And he said the one thing is, is that Jews teach on money all the time. When you're a child, you were taught how money operates. And I said, so why are all these countries always, like, I mean, it's not, you know, we think of Hitler and killing the Jews. This has been going on for a long time. I mean, you see it all throughout Scripture, things like that. He said one of the biggest reasons is, is that the Jews were the lenders of the money to these other countries. And a lot of times, instead of paying them back, they just go kill them. And he said, that's why you see a lot of these wars where these Jews are slaughtered. is because they were the bankers. You see, America, who are we loaning money to today? Nobody. We don't have any. Because we have a consumer economy. It's based on consumption. There was a time in American history where other countries were borrowing from us. We had a lot of savings. We had a lot of gold because we were producing. We would loan money to England. In fact, if you guys are familiar with the Suez Canal... It was created back in the 1800s as a, as a point so that they could get through and, and keep trade, making it so you didn't have to go all the way around Africa. And we had loaned England a ton of money. And they owed us money, and there was a war that was getting ready to uh, happen over this Suez Canal. And England was a big part of it, and the U.S. didn't like it. And so the U.S. leaders, and you can study this stuff out, basically gave uh, old England a phone call and said, hey, uh, you know, if you're going to go to war over this, um, why don't you just go ahead and pay us back everything that you owe us right now with interest? And uh, they decided, well, maybe, maybe that's not such a big deal. Maybe we don't need to, to fight over the Suez Canal. Why is that? Because we had a hold of them. You see, if we call that loan due in full, they had no means of paying it. That's the difference. That is why the borrower is slave to the, to the lender. Now think about our economy. Some of you guys remember a time in which we had the gold standard. Right, which meant every dollar that you had was backed by either silver or gold. In other words, the U.S. for every dollar had silver or gold set aside in savings account and some, you know, set of, you know, Fort Knox and all that stuff. And that dollar represented a percentage of that gold. 
So if that dollar went anywhere, the U.S. had the ability to pay it back in gold. It's called gold notes, silver notes, all of that, silver certificates. If you notice that our dollar bills today, now it says Federal Reserve note. So now it's based off the promise of the U.S. government. Okay? But back then it happened. And in, um, man, when was that? Back in the 70s, I think, when they went off the gold standard? I can't remember when it was. Do you remember, Stan? You were there. He was there. So, uh, but why did we go off the gold standard? And why did it happen on a Sunday night? You ever wonder that? Well, what had happened is America started borrowing a bunch of money from France. More than they had produced. They were borrowing money left and right. And France had a whole list of things that they wanted America to stop. So they called our debt due in gold, and we did not have it. And so Nixon knew we didn't have it because we'd been borrowing so much. And so he made inflation critical to our economy. And so what he did is he took it off the gold standard. And now they were able to pay back our debt in U.S. dollars promised and backed by the good faith of the government. Okay? So what is that dollar worth? It is worth what the government is saying it is worth. And it's introduced inflation like crazy. You guys remember 10 cents cheeseburgers? They existed at one point. If you get offered one now, you need to run away from it as fast as you can. You see, you don't borrow your way to prosperity. You borrow your way to slavery. God wants us indebted to no one and not even himself. Now think about this. Everything that we've ever done wrong, every bad thought that we've ever had, we owe a debt because of that. I mean, Jesus, when he's standing there, he says, if you've even looked at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He like upped the ante. He said, these are all the things that you've done wrong. But God intervened on our behalf and paid that debt in full for us. Are we indebted to God for that? No, we're not. Because he said we're not. He said, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you children. You see, we are brought in by him and by him alone. It is He that makes it ability to do this. And so there are three things that we always have to do when we're looking at finances. We're going to get more into the personal side here shortly. But, but we have to look inward, we have to look backward, and we have to look forward. When we look inward, I need to figure out why am I making so many dumb choices? Why do I make these choices? When we look backward, I've got to ask myself, did this make my life better? Has it added anything to my life? There's a verse that in Proverbs 13, 7, it says, There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. Think about that for a minute. It's not how much you have. It's what does what you have have you. And so when we look at these economies, we have to look at it this way. When we look individually, we have to look at it this way and say, okay, is this everything? 